We continue to work our way through the book of Exodus, and this morning's reading is a short one from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's how the rather literal English standard translation, the English standard version, translates the last verse in Exodus 2. God saw and God knew. What exactly does it mean to say that God knew? I mean, after all, if God is omniscient and knows everything anyway, what's the point of saying that he saw and he knew. What did God know? What difference did it make? I'm almost tempted to say that God knows what the precise meaning of this phrase is because no one else is quite sure. That's what the average person means when they say God knows. It means I've got a clue. Nobody else has a clue either. Only God knows. And what did God know? Well, that's that's left unspecified as well. But whatever God knew, he knew as a result of seeing the people and hearing their groaning and crying out for help in their slavery. God knew. Does that mean God simply became aware of what was happening? As if he saw it on the six o'clock news? My word, look at that. I had no idea they were suffering so much. Is that that it? Just an awareness of what was going on? God suddenly coming to his senses and realising what was happening? It's because the phrase God knew is so ambiguous that many other translations have opted for other ways to draw out the meaning of this phrase. So the NIV goes for God was concerned. The NRSV opts for God took notice. The CEV chooses God felt sorry for his people. The REB goes with God took heed of their plight. This much is clear. God knowing led to God acting, taking the initiative, deciding to get involved and do something about it. Because at the very start of the next chapter, the angel of the Lord meets with Moses and the Lord unpacks what is meant by this phrase, God knew. The Lord tells Moses that he's seen the affliction of his people. He's heard their cry. He knows their sufferings. And he's come down to deliver them. I know their sufferings. Slightly different from saying, I know all about their sufferings. I know their sufferings. I know what they're going through. This is more than just empirical knowledge, the assimilation of sensory data and the processing of facts. I know their situation. I'm identifying with them in it. I'm taking it on board. 
I don't just know it in my head, I know it in my heart, I know it in my gut. Gets me here. It's an intensely personal kind of knowledge. Nothing superficial or merely intellectual about it. Can the saying, God knew, really carry that amount of freight? Are we in danger of overloading the text and reading more meaning into a single phrase than is really warranted? We need to remember that the word to know does overtime in English. It means all kinds of different things. French and German both have two different words for know. They use one for knowing people and another for knowing facts. But as is often the case, English is quite a lazy language. We're happy to use one word and make it do all kinds of things. So think about all the different meanings you can convey by saying, I know, depending on the context and how you say it. You can simply mean, yes, I've got that. Understand it. Or you can say, I know. You're telling me something of which I'm already fully aware. Stop bothering me about it. Or, I know. This is really difficult, and I sympathise, and I understand, and I'm as frustrated about it as you are. Or, I know, hey, I've just had a brilliant idea. So if we imagine God saying, I know, at the end of Exodus 2, how does he say it? What's he mean by it? The English verb to know translates five different Hebrew verbs in the Old Testament. And the one used here at the end of Exodus 2 is far and away the most common. comes 954 times in the Hebrew Bible. And precisely because it's used so often, it carries a fairly broad range of meaning. It can mean observe, realise, find out, recognise, perceive, care about, become acquainted with, have sex with, Choose, understand, have insight, take your pick. But where the word is used with God as the subject, as here, we're usually talking about a relational knowledge rather than an intellectual perception. God is said to know his people in the sense that he has a special, particular relationship with them. God knows us inside out. He understands what makes us tick. He has a depth of insight into how we're made, because he made us. He sees what we think and feel. Even the secret thoughts and inclinations of our hearts are not hidden from him. He has an in-depth knowledge of us that comes from a deep familiarity with us. God sometimes may test his people to see how well we're doing, He evaluates and judges us. He cares for us and protects us. He knows and understands at an experiential level. He identifies with us in our trials and sufferings and takes our woes upon himself. I know, at the end of Exodus 2, that's a personal knowledge of his people an understanding of all that they are going through. It is God identifying with them completely in their trials and sufferings. It is an intimate knowledge. When God knows, he knows intimately.
Does God know me like that? Does God know you like that? Certainly he does. Psalm 139 puts it well. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. That's a pretty comprehensive knowledge. God knows us better than we know ourselves because nothing is hidden from him. As I've said before, people sometimes talk about something called the Kahari window. It's a square divided into four quadrants. One quadrant is open. It represents public knowledge. Stuff I know about myself and you know, you all know as well. It's out in the open. There's nothing hidden or concealed. Everybody knows this about me. Then there's a quadrant which is hidden. This is private knowledge. This is stuff that I know about me and I'm not going to tell you. Nobody else knows and nobody else will know unless I choose to share it with them. And there are some things that I will probably never share publicly. Then the third quadrant represents things that other people know about me. Things about which I am in blissful ignorance. There are things about me to which I myself am blind unless you give me feedback to make me aware of them. Do so gently, please. It can come as quite an unpleasant shock sometimes to discover truths about yourself that you didn't know that are known to other people. Then there's a fourth quadrant which represents things, represents things about me that nobody knows. I don't know them and neither do you. This is the unconscious and in terms of content this quadrant is necessarily blank. But it's not quite true to say that no one knows what's in that quadrant because God does. God knows exactly what is buried deep in the innermost vaults of our soul. Everything is out in the open with him. God perceives. God understands. God knows. God knows you in the sense that he holds your life in the palm of his hand. And nothing is hidden from him. Well, that's all very well, you may say. What difference does that make to me? Make to me? I don't feel anything. And frankly, it doesn't help very much to be told that God knows what I'm going through. If he knows I'm going through all this, why doesn't he do something about it? Welcome to the world of the Israelites in Egypt. And the conundrum as to why God left them in such a state for such a long time. Exodus is a difficult book. Because you read the first two to three chapters and think, why God? Why doesn't God do something? And then you get to the chapters about the plagues and why on earth is God doing this? It's one of those really tough questions. If God sees what is going on and hears our prayers and understands what we're going through, why doesn't he come and sort it out straight away? What answer do you give to someone in that situation? 
The best answer you can give is one which is really unsatisfactory to anyone who really finds themselves up against it. God knows. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He understands our situation better than we do. He loves us more than we love ourselves sometimes. That's as far as it goes. We just have to wait and trust that God is holding on to us even though we may not be aware of that. Not knowing and understanding God as well as he knows and understands us can make it really difficult for us to take the decision to trust him because there's so much that doesn't make sense. But even if you feel like you've abandoned him or lost touch with him, that does not mean that God has abandoned you and he's promised that he will never ever do so. So whether you're ranting at God or pouring out your heart to to him, clinging on to faith by your fingernails or just giving up because you don't see the point anymore, the truth remains that you will not slip out of God's sight and he will not forget. He knows you better than you know him. And he will hold on to you even if you find it hard to understand. He sees, he hears, he knows. And that's far more important than how much you feel you can put your trust in him at this moment in time. Because however weak or fragile your faith is, God still sees, God still hears, God still knows. And the other thing God does is he remembers. The Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God was bound to these people in Egypt by promises that he'd made to their forefathers, covenant promises that he would not break. And God has bound himself to you by covenant promises that he will not break as well. The promise realised in Christ that he will be your God and you will be his people. It's that covenant that we remember and we celebrate as we share communion together at the end of this service. The body of Christ, broken by the sin of the world, given for us, given to us, shared among us. The blood of Christ, sealing the eternal covenant between God and his people. That's how it's described, an eternal covenant. We often use words to try and make sense of things. And there are times when words fail us and nothing makes any sense. God can't be captured by words. God can't be expressed by words. In the midst of darkness and chaos and confusion, words sometimes just don't do the job. But you don't need words to celebrate communion. 
You don't need to articulate a prayer. When words fail, it's just a matter of eating some bread and drinking some wine. What does that symbolise? It symbolises your acceptance of Christ, despite your lack of faith, despite your unanswered questions, your dire situation, your lack of love, your guilt, or your fear. Jesus invites you to come and eat and drink as you are. He remembers his covenant with you. And when words fail you, and my words don't connect with you, you can reach out without words and just receive him in bread and wine. We eat and drink to say, I want you. I need you as my saviour. And when we do so for his part, what does Jesus say? He says, I know. I know. (laughs) 